So, beginning at verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers, as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Thank you so much, Lydia. Do keep that passage open, and there's an outline on the inside of your notice sheet if you'd like to follow along. I wonder, um, are you a forgetful person? Are you the kind of person who finds yourself at the top of the stairs wondering not only why you went up, but how you got up? <laughs> Do you have to reactivate Amazon Prime every couple of months in a panic because you suddenly remember there's a family birthday tomorrow? That is me, I'm afraid. Um, Sean and I had been at a previous church for about nine months when I turned around in my row and saw a face I didn't recognize. And being you know, keen to welcome the newcomer, I said, oh, hi, I don't think we've met before. Are you new? And she said, no, I'm the pastor's wife. 
you came to my house last week for lunch. Um, fortunately, I have a secret weapon, which is a wife with a mind like a steel trap. Seriously, if you're, if you're a regular at a church, it's, you can test the later. Ask her your car registration plate, anything. She's not a stalker, I promise, but she just keeps it all in. Now, why are we talking about this today? We have three chapters of uh, Deuteronomy before us, and don't worry, we're not going to go line by line through all three. But throughout these three chapters, Moses has one repeated command for the Israelites. He expresses it both positively and negatively. Cast your eyes down these chapters and see it with me. 7 verse 18. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh. 8 verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you. 8 verse 11. Be careful not to forget the Lord your God. 8 verse 18. Remember the Lord your God. 9 verse 7. Remember this and never forget. This is clearly a big deal. In fact, we saw last week Moses taking steps to help the Israelites remember. If you were here with us, you'll remember, I hope, that he, he urged them to teach God's word to their children, to graffiti it on their door frames and their gates, to wear it on their foreheads. We'd perhaps say today, tattoo it on your eyelids. Keep this word, this truth about your God, always in front of you. Keep it fresh in your minds. Remember it and don't forget it. Clearly, forgetfulness is a massive danger for the Israelites and a major problem. But why? Are they just an absent-minded people like me? They'll suddenly find they can't remember God's name like I can't remember my children's birthdays. Well, we'll see today that the danger is much more subtle than that, and the problem is much more widespread. Over the course of these three chapters, we're going to build up a picture of what forgetfulness looks like. What Moses is warning against, we'll see what drives it and we'll see what the dangers are. And we'll see that although we are in a very different context to the Israelites, we're still liable to the same temptations and therefore privy to the same dangers. But what we're also going to see is that in the gospel of Jesus, under the new covenant, there is both grace to forgive our forgetfulness and power to help us remember So let's dive in, and the first thing we'll see is that fear leads to forgetfulness. At the beginning of chapter 7, Moses reminds the Israelites of the task that lies before them. They're to enter the promised land and drive out the nations that live there already. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, says that they are to completely destroy them so they won't be tempted into idolatry. Now, there's an awful lot to say about that, but we've already said a bit about a lot about idolatry and about Israel's policy of, of total destruction in previous weeks. We're not going to go into that now. If you want to ask about it, please come and talk to me afterwards. But this reminds us that, in a sense, we are back where we started. This generation's parents, remember, had been in exactly this spot before when they stood at Kadesh Barnea and were called to go in and take possession of the promised land. And at that point, if you remember, they refused to do it because they were afraid. They were afraid of the Anakites, the the giants who roamed the land in their massive fortified cities. And Moses knows that this generation is going to face the same temptation. And here we start to get an insight into the kind of forgetfulness that Moses is warning them about. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verses 17 and 18. You may say to yourselves... These nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh 
and to all Egypt. Do you see that Moses says that the opposite of fear is remembering? Don't be afraid, remember. And that tells us that fear can lead to a kind of forgetfulness. As they face these armies, these nations, these scary giants, they are in danger of forgetting what God had done in Egypt, forgetting that he is powerful, forgetting that he has demonstrated that power over much stronger enemies than this, forgetting that he is good and has worked for their good in the past. Now, have they literally forgotten this? Has it completely slipped their minds that there were slaves in Egypt and that God brought them out? Well, clearly not. Interestingly, in verse 19, Moses says, You saw with your own eyes the great trials, miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. Moses says they've they've seen what God did, all the plagues, the signs and wonders that brought Pharaoh to his knees. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because although that literally might be true for some of the older members of this community, it can't be literally true of everybody there. Some of this second generation have presumably been born in the wilderness over the past 40 years and, and were never in Egypt. Yet throughout Deuteronomy, we've seen that God is present and reveals himself through his word. As they've heard the stories, God has brought the reality of his rescue before their eyes. He's filled their minds and imaginations with a picture of his powerful, gracious salvation in the Exodus. We see something similar in the New Testament, actually, where Paul tells the Galatians that Christ was crucified before their very eyes. That wasn't literally physically true, but it's true in the word that they've heard. The word brings the reality of God's power and God's salvation before their eyes. And yet right now, what's in front of their eyes? What they are looking at as they look over the border into the promised land is a country swarming with massive blokes with swords and armor and big cities with battlements and gates. A group of seven peoples that look frankly invincible. That's what's in front of their eyes right now. A competing vision. A picture of how the world is that threatens to drive out the image they have in their heads of who God is. Their knowledge of God's goodness and God's power is having to battle against a present reality which looks unstoppable and unbeatable and inevitable. Just look at the size of them. Look at how many of them there are. We are obviously, obviously going to lose. And I think this helps us understand what Moses means by forgetfulness. Forgetting God doesn't, at first, mean just forgetting he exists. Now, give it three or four generations and we might get there. But in the first instance, forgetting God means that he is no longer a present reality in our lives. He's no longer a present reality in our lives. His name might be on our lips. His word may be somewhere in the back of our minds but he's no longer making a difference. Something else, some other reality, some other threat feels more real, feels stronger than God, feels bigger than God. If you like, we are seeing God through the lens of this other thing that feels more near and feels more real. And so this thing that's in front of our eyes is what is driving our decisions and affecting our outlook and ruling our lives and God no longer gets a look in. We sort of forget. 
We might not consciously say this, but we might get to thinking, well, God can't really help me in this situation. He might as well, in fact, not exist because he's no longer a present reality in our lives. This thing we're scared of is bigger and stronger and more real and it's right in front of our eyes and so we forget. Now, it's not just the Israelites that are prone to this kind of forgetfulness and this is not the only fear that can drive it. Obedience to God was taking the Israelites into a scary situation where they'd be tempted to forget. So what might that look like for us today? Where might obedience to God take us that's scary? What kind of fear might make us forget? Here's three to be thinking about. I'm sure there's more. Here's one. There's fear of man. Fear of other people. I want to stand up for Jesus in my workplace or my school or my university lectures I want to tell people what I believe about how life can work best in God's world, but I fear what people say. I fear their disapproval and their rejection. That is the image that looms large in our eyes of people mocking and spurning and shunning me and hating me. And start to think, perhaps, again, not particularly consciously, but I begin to think, well, perhaps God can't keep me safe in that situation. Here's another one. What about fear of failure? We don't fear perhaps what people might say, but we fear that it simply won't work. That people won't become Christians when we tell them the gospel. That we'll start an expensive building project and not be able to finish it. That we'll go and be part of a church plant, but we'll have to sort of give it up in a few years because it didn't really take. We fear risking our time and energy on money on something that might not really come to much. Or perhaps for our students and young people at the moment, it's the fear of failure in your exams the fear of not being able to get a job to provide for yourself, or the fear that people are going to think that you're stupid, that your parents will be disappointed in you. The shame and, and weariness of all those situations looms in front of our very, very eyes. And we start to think, again, back of our minds, not consciously, we start to think perhaps God isn't quite good enough or quite strong enough to see his plans for us to fruition. Or perhaps God is not strong enough or clever enough to make something good from our failures and our disappointments or to carry us through the shame of failure and out the other side. Fear of man, fear of failure, or ironically, what about fear of judgment? Our own sin looms very large in front of our eyes. We replay things we've said or things we've done or things we've thought and we berate ourselves that we're not good enough, that we can't possibly be good enough. We start to think that God surely cannot think kindly of us or keep forgiving us. We think again, subconsciously, perhaps God is not quite kind enough or not quite loving enough or powerful enough to overcome my weakness and forgive my sin. And so slowly, imperceptibly, the fear of man or the fear of failure or the fear of judgment or some other fear displace a true view of God. They become the lens through which we see the world. They become the lens through which we think about God. We begin to forget who God is. He becomes less and less real to us. And so we start to turn to other things to help us get through life, to give us approval in the eyes of people to give us success and meaning in life, to give us a sense of comfort in the face of our sin. 
There's a great irony here, do you see it? That as we begin to drive God out of our minds because of fear that he is not good enough to rescue us, we end up replacing him with things that are definitely not good enough to rescue us. These fears become self-fulfilling prophecies. We get caught in a vicious spiral of fear and forgetfulness that leads to idolatry and judgment. What can break us out? The answer is to remember God's grace to weak people. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 9. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. You see, Moses asked the people, why do you think God chose you for this job of going into Canaan and driving out the people? Did he choose you because you were a big, strong nation? He thought, yes, this is exactly what I need to win battles for me. These guys have got the right stuff to take on the Anakites. Was it like in school football where everyone lines up against the wall and the captains pick and they both argue over who gets Israel because they're the fastest and best and the strongest? No, exactly the opposite. Israel was like me in school football. The captain, why did you immediately laugh at that as if you knew what I was going to say? The captains argued who, over who got me because it was having a handicap, right? Uh, God deliberately chose the last pick, the weak and small people, a single wandering Aramean called Abraham, a family enslaved in a nation not their own. And from that grew a victorious, prosperous, numerous people. His power has done it all. And the same is true under the new covenant. Look at what Paul says on the screen to the Corinthian Christians. 1 Corinthians 1, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You see, God delights to use weak people to do strong things. Because then he gets all the glory. Why do you think he chose you to be part of his covenant? Why do you think he chose you to be a member of his church? To be part of his means to reach the world with the gospel? Because he thought that you were just amazing? That you'd be an indispensable addition to his team? Do you think you were headhunted? No. His power has done it all. And his grace has made all the difference. Look again at chapter 7, verse 7, and see something um, interesting. Verse 7 why did the Lord set his affection on you? Why did he love Israel? Why did God love Israel? Verse 8, because he loved you. He loved them because he loved them. He did not love them because they were lovely. He loved them because he is loving. And the fulfillment of that is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of God's love for us, and therefore the ultimate end to all of our fears. Do you fear the disapproval of other people? Well, in the cross of Christ, Jesus has won your approval with God. If you're a Christian today, if you're trusting in him, God approves of you in Christ. 
He delights in you as his forgiven child. Nothing and no one can stop you being safe with him. Do you fear failure? From the cross of Christ, we see that God delights to bring strength through weakness. Not every plan of ours is going to come to fruition, but do you think that then that means that God will abandon us? Do you think that he can't provide for you or can't provide for us if our plans don't come to pass? The cross of Christ says, here is a God who will never leave us or forsake us. And although not every plan of ours may come to pass, every plan of God's will, and his grace is sufficient to overcome and forgive our failures and even to bring good through them. Do you fear his judgment? Well, in the cross of Christ, we see that all our guilt and shame is removed because Christ has taken it all. He does not love you because you are lovely. He loves you because he loves you. And no sin of ours can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. See, the Israelites were going into a scary situation. And Moses said to them, listen, remember. Remember what God has done for you. Look back on the Exodus to help you remember and help you overcome their fears. Well, we have something even greater. Fear can lead to forgetfulness. So let us remember God's grace to weak people in the cross of Christ. But that is not the only threat to the Israelites' memory. There's also the challenge of comfort, because on the other side of the battle lies the bounty. Look at Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 to 10, that Lydia read uh, for us before. Verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, Vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Do you see, God wants to do his people good. Do you see that? He wants them to enjoy a good and rich and long life in the land. He wants to give them water and grain and fruit and pomegranates. And he's going to help them mine iron and copper from the mountains. He wants them to eat. He wants them to be satisfied. And he wants them to be thankful. We saw this in 1 Timothy 4 uh, last term, didn't we? That every good gift comes from God. And it's not to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. God wants us to enjoy the good gifts of his creation. But with these creature comforts comes a danger. That's not because they're bad, but because people are sinful. To sinful hearts, everything is potentially dangerous, isn't it? Both the fear of hardship and the enjoyment of plenty. You know, we'll manage to find a way of sinning with both of them. So what is the danger in this situation when they are comfortable and full and satisfied? Look at verse 11. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God's failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. 
You see, Moses knows what comfort can do to sinful people. It doesn't take long, does it, for a good gift that we're thankful for to become, in our minds, a basic human right that we're entitled to. It's a well-trodden road. The first time we get to enjoy something, we're so thankful for it. It's an amazing new gift. By the third or fourth time, we're sort of used to it. By the tenth time, we expect it. And by that time, if someone tries to take take it away from us, will complain as if we can't live without it. I can think of a thousand examples. I'm sure you can too. Let's just take a random one. Let's take Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is an unbelievably advanced technology. The idea that I can, with a small device in my pocket, connect wirelessly to basically every other computer in the world, pretty much, and learn anything, watch anything, communicate with anyone, basically for free. That's ridiculous. Can we agree that's ridiculous? What an extraordinarily rich gift that is, and a very, very recent one at that. And if we go to a cafe, and they don't have their Wi-Fi password written on the wall somewhere, we feel vaguely affronted. What kind of place is this? They don't even have the very basics. You can apply that to all sorts of things, can't you? The gift of a warm house and good foods, the health we enjoy, good weather, music, kitchen utensils, whatever you like. How quickly we forget that these are gifts. How quick we are to complain when we don't have them. And as Moses says, how quickly they can make us forget God. They're not bad things at all. They're very, very good things. And God loves to give them to his children. And and the new creation will be overflowing with them. But the very goodness of them has the ability to drive out thoughts of God, to drive out the present reality of God from our sinful minds. Yes, we might still confess that God is good. We might even be vaguely aware that he created all the good things we enjoy. We might have his teachings somewhere in the back of our minds, but we enjoy the gifts of his creation without thanking him, without thinking of him, and beginning to subtly believe that we rather deserve these things, that we're entitled to them, that we earned them, Do you remember Bart Simpson's prayer? In the TV show, The Simpsons, Bart is asked to say grace before a meal, and to a chorus of hearty amens, he says this, Dear God, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. No, it's it's supposed to be funny, good, hold on. No, No wonder the Bible speaks about the deceitfulness of wealth. That comfort and security and plenty can make us forget that we are utterly dependent on God for everything. As he says in chapter 8, verse 18, as Simon reminded us earlier, even the ability to make wealth is given by God. What does that forgetfulness lead to? Well, we've already seen it. seen it can lead to grumbling and complaining. It can lead to being obsessed with having the latest thing, with having just a little bit more, a little bit more comfort, a little bit more money in the account because we deserve it and we need it and we're dependent on it and we earned it, didn't we? It can lead to stinginess and to meanness. Why would we want to part with our hard-earned cash? We've earned it. We're entitled to it and we need it. It can lead to discontentment, coveting the lifestyles of others as if what we've been given isn't much more than we deserve, and it isn't enough. And eventually, ironically, it can lead to a lack of enjoyment of the things of earth. Because if we're entitled to these things, if we deserve them, if we earn them, we'll be extremely stressed about losing them. 
and we will not be able to freely receive them. We will not be able to freely enjoy them, and we won't be able to freely give them away. We'll make an idol of the comfortable life that God has given us. And as God says in 8 verse 19 to 20, those who participate in the idolatry of the nations will face the same judgment as those nations. So what do we need to remember when comfort begins to make us forget? We need to remember God's grace to poor people. For the Israelites, this was demonstrated throughout their time in the wilderness, a time when there was genuine hardship and genuine lack. And yet look at what God did during that time. Look back, Deuteronomy 8, verse 1 to 5. He says, be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. You see, even in the desert, even when actually they were under the judgment of God for their sin, God provided what they needed. Even their hardships, even their times of hunger were used by God to do them good, to humble them and teach them and discipline them as a father disciplines his son. See, they've known the fatherly care and discipline of God, the care that gives them everything they need, the discipline which withholds some things sometimes to help them grow and mature. And in all that, they were taught to depend on God for everything they needed not uh, on themselves. They had no ability to provide for themselves and create wealth in the desert. Instead, God just dropped manna, bread from heaven, into the camp every day. And so they have seen and they have known and they need to remember that God can give them everything they need, that they need to depend on him, not on themselves, and not rely on, this, on the things this world can provide. And again, we see this all the more clearly fulfilled in the new covenant in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus was once confronted by a group of people who asked him what work they had to do for God. Jesus replied, well, the work of God is just to believe in the one whom he has sent. They had to put their trust in him. They had to depend on him for their salvation. And they didn't quite believe that, so they asked him for a miraculous sign, like the sign of manna from heaven in the desert. Jesus said this on the screen in John chapter 6. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, Jesus promises to meet us in our need, in our lack. He said at another time that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In our need, in our lack, in our total helplessness, God met us and he continues to meet us with grace in Jesus. And he continues to watch over us with fatherly care and discipline. If you have comfort today, if you have good things, praise God for them because God has given them to you. He gives us all we need, which is far more than we deserve. 
and he calls us to depend on him as the one who's able to bring us to the new creation where he will meet every need and every lack for all time. In the midst of comfort, which can lead to forgetfulness, we need to remember God's grace to poor people. So let us say that we've learned those lessons. Let us say that we are feeling now a little more brave, a little more courageous. Let us say that we are a little more on our guard against the deceitfulness of wealth. But there's one more danger that Moses wants to warn his people of. One more thing that could lead them to forget their God. And yet again, it's a danger for our hearts too. It's that pride leads to forgetfulness. Look at Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 to 5. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No. It is, on account, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their lands, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, the Israelites, if they remember God, are entering into a blessed life. They're going to be able to defeat great nations and they will enjoy great plenty. But then another danger presents itself. They may start to believe that their blessed life is a reward for their righteousness. Now there is a little bit of tension here that we have to reckon with because in one sense their long life in the land is dependent on their obedience. We saw that back in Deuteronomy 7 verse 12 to 13 where he says, if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your fathers. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers and so on. These are the terms of the covenant. If they obey, they will enjoy blessing. A good God is calling them to good life in a good land, and so they can take hold of that by trusting and obeying him, by listening to his words, and by walking in faithfulness to his covenant. But as chapter 9 has made very clear, there's nothing sort of mechanical or tit-for-tat about that. It's not as though God is some kind of heavenly vending machine where you put good works in and get blessing out. It's certainly not as though the Israelites have got themselves into God's good books by their good works so far. That has not happened. As verse 4 and 5 make clear, just because the Anakites are particularly wicked, that doesn't mean the Israelites are particularly righteous. No, it's just that God is using the Israelites to bring judgment on the Anakites, and so they have to remember something about themselves. Look at what they have to remember in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this, and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, You've been rebellious against the Lord. 
See, the Israelites have to learn that this covenant is not about them. It's not about their goodness. It's not about their righteousness or their good works. It is about God and his purposes. It's about his glory and it's about his grace. He does not love them because they're lovable and they're not particularly lovable. He loves them because he's loving. But if the people forget this, if they begin to believe that they have come to enjoy all this because of their moral goodness and their moral superiority to all the other nations, then what will that do to their view of God? What lens will that put in front of their eyes? If they forget their own sinfulness, they will surely forget God too. They may still confess his name, but as their self-righteousness grows, so their view of God will shrink. As their self-righteousness grows, their view of God will shrink. Because if I am an utterly wretched sinner, then God has to be extraordinarily kind and gracious to stoop to save me. That's what the focus guys were telling us earlier, weren't they? That God is so good and we are so wicked that his grace must be so amazing. But if I'm quite a good person, actually, certainly better than those awful Anakites, then God doesn't have to be that gracious, does he, to meet me and to save me? In fact, he might just be giving me my due. In fact, he might even owe me. It was a danger for them. It's a danger for us too. It's a danger particularly in our day and age as our society and as our culture drifts progressively further and further away from the Bible's teaching and the Bible's ethics. It's possible for us as a church to start thinking, It's a good job we're here then, isn't it? It's a good job we're here to maintain God's standards. It's a good job we're not like those sinners out there. Just can't believe. Did you see what it said in the paper today? I cannot believe people would think like that. I can't believe people would act like that. I praise you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. See, if we start thinking like that, we'll be praising a small God of our own making. Our self-righteousness will lead us to believe in a vending machine God who rewards people for their obedience, even if that obedience is frankly not particularly impressive. And meanwhile, the real God will be stopping his ears. Pride leads to forgetfulness. So what do we need to remember? We need to remember God's grace to wicked people. The Israelites needed to remember why they were God's people in the first place. Look over at Deuteronomy 9, verse 27. This is what um, Moses prayed to God when the Israelites made the golden calf. If you remember the story, they're at Horeb, Sinai. Moses is literally at the top of the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. The first one says, you know, don't have any other gods. Second one says, don't make any, any other images. Meanwhile, they're down at the bottom making other images and having other gods. And this is what Moses prays to God, verse 27. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness, and their sin. Do you see what Moses asked God to do? He asked him to remember, to remember his covenant. God hasn't forgotten his covenant, hasn't slipped his mind, but Moses asked that God would act on it, that his covenant would be a present reality that changed the way he lived, to continue his grace and kindness to sinners. Moses asked God, please, please remember. And then he asks him, and please forget. Please overlook the stubbornness and sin of the people. 
see that sin through the lens of your grace. Please do not take it into account. The Israelites needed to know that the covenant God had made, the covenant that God had made with them was founded on grace. It was founded on what God remembered and what God forgot. How much more so is the new covenant in Jesus? In Jeremiah chapter 31, the promise of that new covenant is that God will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And that is the new covenant that Jesus made in his blood. Now, yes, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant, change is possible. We will, as we gather around God's word, grow in our godliness and our conformity to him. We will, we pray and hope, start to see the differences between a Christian way of life and one which pays no attention to the Lord and his ways. And yet we will continue to sin. We will constantly need the forgiveness and grace of God. And we must always remember why we were included in this covenant to start with. Look on the screen with me at Titus chapter 3. It tells us why. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You see, the death, the cross of Jesus Christ shows us two things. First, it shows us the depths of our sin. It shows us that we are so sinful that we incur the wrath of God, a wrath that needed dealing with a consuming fire that needed to fall on another and be burned out so that we sinners could stand before a holy God. As we look at the cross, we are called to remember that it was our sin which drove the perfect Son of God there. But the cross also shows us the depths of God's grace. It shows us that God is so loving that he can overcome the infinite gap between his holiness and our wickedness that he can and will bear with our ongoing failings and faults, that he makes us heirs of eternal life, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus deserves it and we are caught up in his victory, that he has remembered his covenant and that he has forgotten our sin. Now, I'm aware that there might be people here this morning who've never fully grasped that, who are not yet Christians, who've not come to Jesus for forgiveness and you haven't committed your life to following him yet. And you guest with us this morning. Warm, warm welcome to you. We're really, really glad you're here. If that is you, please consider carefully what I've just said. This is the heart of the good news that we long to proclaim here at Moorlands, and we want everybody to hear, that we, and indeed all people, are sinners in desperate need of forgiveness from a gracious God. And that that forgiveness is available only in the cross of Jesus, where he took the punishment we deserve for it. And if you've never considered that before, and perhaps if fear or comfort or pride has stopped you considering it, then I'd love to chat to you about it afterwards. Come and and talk to me and know that grace is available for you today if you will come to Jesus for it. Pride leads to forgetfulness, so remember God's grace to wicked people. Well, as we conclude this morning, let's consider how do we remember? 
If forgetfulness is such a problem and the solution is remembering, how do we do that? How do we help each other as a church do that? Well, three things for us to consider. Firstly, we need to be aware of the things that make us forget. We need to name those things with one another. So is there something or someone that you're afraid of that is holding you back from obeying God in some area of your life? Or are you aware that you're feeling pretty comfortable at the moment and you're beginning to invest too much of your time and energy and money in protecting and increasing what you have and building a plentiful and prosperous life for yourself? Or in losing yourself in entertainment and distraction so that God is hardly ever on your mind? Or are you beginning to feel a little bit smug, a little bit proud of yourself? Have you stopped praying to God because you basically reckon you can do it all yourself? Are you starting to look down on other people who don't quite share the same view as you? Have any of those things meant that God is now less of a present reality in your mind than he used to be? Tell someone about it. Talk to your growth group leader or your real fruit leader or a trusted friend. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the other elders. Be aware of the things that are making us forget. And secondly, pay attention to the words that will help you remember. We considered in a previous talk just how many words come at us in our world. We're bombarded with text and messaging and imagery and all sorts of things that can fill our minds and put things in front of our eyes that are in competition with God's word. And so we need to be people who pay close attention to the words which will help us remember. And we need to help each other do that. Could you be someone this week who puts the word of God in front of another believer's eyes? And are you giving yourselves the opportunities to do that? This is why things like coming to church on Sunday and going to our growth groups and real food groups and reading the Bible and talking about Jesus with others, with other Christian friends, it really matters. It's life and death, both for us to remember and both for us to help others to remember. Apparently, the oldest judicial position in Great Britain, created by Henry II in 1154, is someone called the King's Remembrancer. Not called the Queen's Remembrancer at the moment. They don't really do this job anymore. At the moment, they just sort of wear fancy clothes and turn up to the coronation. But a remembrancer's job in the olden days was to remind the Lord Treasurer and the other nobles at the King's Court about the jobs they had to do, the pending business, the unpaid taxes, that kind of thing. He was basically a one-man phone notification service, sort of chirping away in the corner, uh, keeping people on track. In 1594, Lancelot Andrews, the chaplain to Queen Elizabeth, preached a sermon where he said that Christian ministers were the Lord's remembrancers. People whose job it is to sit in the corner and chirp away with God's word so that people would not forget their gods, would not forget his grace, would not forget their sin and their need for him, would not give in to fear or comfort or pride. I rather like that job description for myself. I'm happy to take that. Could you be that for somebody else? Could you be the Lord's remembrancer in the life of another this week? So we need to be aware of what makes us forget. We need to pay attention to the words that will help us remember. Finally, we need to remember what the Lord remembers and what he forgets. He remembers his covenant. He remembers his grace. He remembers us the people on whom he has set his affection because he loves us in Christ and he completely forgets our sins. Let me conclude with this prayer from Psalm 25. 
To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, and in you I trust, O my gods. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are my God, my Saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, you are good O Lord. Father, we thank you so much that you are the God who remembers and that you are the God who forgets. Thank you that you remember your covenant, you remember your grace to the Lord, uh, in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you remember us. You act towards us with love and forgiveness and mercy and compassion which we do not deserve. And thank you that you are a God who forgets our sins, who does not bring them to mind or hold them against us, but who's laid them all on the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that, Father. And we, we pray, please, that fear or comfort or pride would not lead us to forget but help us all as our church family to be the Lord's remembrances for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, in a few minutes, the uh, primary age children are going to join us. Uh, as we're waiting for them to come back, do take a few moments to reflect on what we've learned or chat about it with the person next to you.